You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. So we continue in our time of worship. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 22, we're going to be completing chapter 22 tonight. We looked at the first 14 verses last week. We'll look at 15 to the end of the chapter tonight. Thank you, Regen, Adam, praise team, musicians, for always faithfully stewarding the music and singing portion of our worship service, preparing us for worship through the preaching of God's word. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord continue to bless what he has already been blessing. Father, we thank you that we have a savior to sing about and we have the Holy Spirit to creating us the desires to sing about this savior. We thank you for the gift of the corporate worship and the gift of the saints and we thank you Lord for the gift of song and the song of the lamb, the new song. And pray Lord tonight as we complete what is mostly an obscure section of Genesis, Genesis 22, 15 and following. We pray that song of the Lamb that reverberates in our hearts would be made stronger as we behold him uh, in this passage that points to him. We ask these things for his sake. Amen. So in biblical categories of time, a distinction is made between um, what is known as Kronos and Kairos. Kronos is, you think about chronology, it, it just refers to, to a normal linear passing of time, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, that's Kronos. Kairos refers to a specific moment of great significance, okay? That word is used several times in the New Testament to refer to this specific moment in time that has great significance. So for instance, the Exodus or the incarnation of the Son of God, the cross or the resurrection. It's an example of Kairos. In our vernacular, the closest thing that we can, can uh, in our English language to make this distinction is the terms historical and historic. So for instance, what happened in November of 1972 in the state of Alabama, everything that happened in November of 72 was historical. But what happened in Legion Field that year is historic, right? Punt, bama, punt. What happened in June of 44 throughout the world was historical. Everything that happened. But what happened as the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, that's historic. That's the best we have in English to to explain the difference between Kronos and, and Kairos. Artists are often engaged 
in the quest for those moments of kairos as the artist tries to capture the essence of, of one's life or event in one frozen moment. It's called in German, now I'm gonna give you a term, don't be afraid of these terms. In German, it's called Fruchtbeer Augenblick, spelled the way it sounds. <laughs> but it's translated fruitful moment, a fruitful moment. So part of the genius of, of Michelangelo was his ability to capture in one frozen pose the essence of a subject. So David, as he's preparing his sling for his battle, that is what we're talking about here, the fruitful moment. Perhaps the best artist to capture these fruitful moments was Rembrandt. It was said of Rembrandt that he would literally sketch hundreds of poses of his characters before he selected the one that really captured the essence of the one that he was, that he was painting. So uh, he has Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. That's Jeremiah's fruitful moment. Uh, that's the kairos of Jeremiah's life. He's lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem, or the descent from the cross. That's another example of Rembrandt. If Rembrandt or Michelangelo were painting Abraham's fruitful moment, it would most have to be Genesis chapter 22. Last week, we saw in the first 14 verses that the Lord commanded Abraham to take his son, his only son, to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And, he, and Abraham placed the wood for the sacrifice on his son's shoulders as they ascend that mountain, okay? And, and so he responds, and as he's about to, to lay the knife in Isaac, God says, no, do not lay your hand on the boy. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw this ram in a thicket. That was in response to Isaac's question, father, where's the lamb? And Abraham had responded, God will provide himself the lamb. That has to be even though Abraham many, had many moments of great significance, that has to be the fruitful moment in Abraham's life. We continue to look at that tonight, Abraham's fruitful moment, as Moses continues to expound on that in verses 15 to 17. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven... I tend to think that this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, this angel of the Lord. You can look in other places, and he, he bears the very attributes of God. And we know that God, saw this morning, is, has a plurality in his being, even in the Old Testament. So I tend to think this is the pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. He would not have had the name Jesus yet. 
He had to be born before he would have that name, but he is the eternal son of God. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Notice the angel of the Lord is now Yahweh, declares the Lord. We see this plurality throughout the Old Testament preparing us to understand him as triune. He said, because you have done this, have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now we're going to come back to this later, but for now, I want you to note that this is the only divine oath in the patriarchal stories. Now, what are the patriarchal stories? The stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the only divine oath, and it's the only time in Genesis that God swears by himself. He swears by himself. If he were to swear by any other name, it would be a lower authority. The highest authority is God, and so he swears by himself. By the way, when you're defending the trustworthiness of Scripture, you can make, you can make points of evidence, that evidential arguments for the, the trustworthiness of Scripture, but the highest argument you can make is it's God's Word because it says it's God's Word. If you appeal to any other authority other than that, you're appealing to a lower authority. Well, that's what God is doing here. And Hebrews 6, 13 and 14 give us the significance of God swearing by himself here. The writer of Hebrews, one day we're going to know who that writer is, writes, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So he's picking up this text right here where God has promised to carry out his promises that he made to Abraham. And ultimately, Luke um, reveals the mystery of that. In the Gospel of Luke chapter one, Luke tells us that it's Christ who was brought into the world incarnate, who is the answer and the response the divine response to this oath. Hear these words from Luke chapter one. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. And so the answer to this promise ultimately is in the son of David. And the context makes it clear. It's the, the son of God who is taking on flesh and blood for us and our salvation. Well, verse 18 Moses writes and continues, and in your offspring 
shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we saw this in the Abrahamic covenant that God has the entire world in his scope, okay? He, he has the whole world. That's why we're a great commission people because we want our hearts to be as large as the scripture calls it our hearts to be. And God has the whole world in his scope and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. As far as we know, these are the last words that are spoken by God to Abraham. Eight times God has spoken audibly to Abraham in his life. And the last words that he speaks to Abraham in this way begins with, Abraham, I swear by myself. It closes out this great narrative of Abraham in a very real sense um, with this fruitful moment that we have with Abraham willing to lay his son as a sacrifice. Let me, before we get to the second section here, speak to some of the great theological truths that we glean from this fruitful moment. First of all, this event shows the exceeding problem of sin. Isaac is on the altar and Isaac is going to die because that's what we deserve, okay? We deserve judgment. We are rebels, we are sinful, uh, we are guilty, we are polluted, we are depraved. And, and we see the price um, that will have to be paid, the great cost of salvation because of our sin. It will require a provision from God and not just any provision. It will require his own son. Third, voluntary death of Isaac. Isaac willingly lays himself up on the altar. He could have physically manhandled his elderly father, but he lays himself up on the altar. Why? Because he believes the gospel. Father, where's the lamb? He knows that a, a, a dead son does no one any good. Fourth, we learn the need for penal sacrifice. That ram that is offered will be slaughtered. Penal sacrifice. We deserve judgment. The ram gets the judgment. Fifth, substitution. It is God who will provide the lamb. Abraham said to Isaac, God will provide himself the lamb. Sixth, the deliverance of Isaac um, comes from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. And then finally, salvation of Isaac's seed, Israel, and the nations, for that matter, will come from God's provision. All of this is taught from this fruitful moment in Abraham's life. This becomes the storyline of Scripture, in fact. The storyline of Scripture centers on the coming and the entering into our world of the Redeemer. Here in Genesis 22, we saw 
this lamb prophesied. The question of the Bible, where is the lamb? He has prophesied here in Genesis 22. God will provide himself the lamb. And instead of a lamb, we see a ram. And so the ram is not the ultimate answer to this request. The ram is a provision, a temporal provision, a precursor, a shadow who will die, but the lamb will come. This is the lamb prophesied. Later in Exodus 12 at the Passover, we see the lamb and his blood applied. So we're learning more about this lamb because on the night of the Passover, they will take these lambs who've lived in their home for a time. They will slaughter those lambs and they will sprinkle the blood on the doorpost and judgment would fall. Now, here's the question. How many homes were judged that night? 100% of the homes. What was the death rate in every home? 100%. Every, every home had death. Was Israel judged the night of Passover? Of course they were judged. God always judges sin. But the ones who applied the blood on the doorpost were judged via the substitute, okay? And so the, the lamb's blood was applied, Exodus chapter 12. And what we learn about Exodus 12 is that our redemption and greater exodus will come through the lamb's blood applied. Later, we will see the lamb typified, that is, uh, through events and, and circumstances and, and persons and offices, they point beyond themselves. So in the sacrificial system, we see thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices offered to temporarily satisfy God's justice on sin. The ultimate expression of the sacrificial system was the Day of Atonement. Of course, you know, on the Day of Atonement, there was one bull goat that was sacrificed for the priest, the residing high priest and his family. Then there was another um, animal that was sacrificed and his blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant propitiating God's wrath, satisfying God's wrath. Then there was another animal. The priest put his hands on this animal and symbolic, symbolically transferred the, the sins of the people to this animal. The sins of the people were imputed to this animal and then the animal was cast out as a, as a scapegoat. And so what we have there are two aspects of atonement, propitiation, and expiation. God's wrath is propitiated. Our guilt for our sin is expiated. And so in the sacrificial system, we see the lamb typified. Incidentally, in that great Psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, David is thinking his, about his sin that he has committed with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. He's also reflecting on that sacrificial system when he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. 
wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isn't that beautiful language when you have sinned against God? In fact, that word purge is based on the word, the Hebrew word for sin. And it literally means de-sin me. Purge me, de-sin me. And hyssop was a small plant that looks, sounds like it looked like a modern day raw broccoli. One of Adam's favorite foods, raw broccoli. And so the, this, this hyssop plant was used um, as, a, as a small brush. In, in sacrificial ceremonies, it was used to sprinkle blood. You would take that hyssop, you would, you would, you would immerse it in the blood and then it would sprinkle on various things. So let me give you one example. Leviticus 14, uh, you have those there who uh, have uh, some kind of leprosy. And so they would take two birds and one bird was killed and they would take the hyssop plant and dip it in the blood of the bird that was killed and then they would, they would sprinkle that blood on the person who was being healed from leprosy. They would take the other bird and they would dip that bird in the blood and then they would let it fly off. Again, it's the same picture that you see on the Day of Atonement. That pictures uh, the, the, the sin, the defilement that has been taken away through the blood. And here's what they would do next. They would take this, this leper who's been healed and they would wash him and they would wash his clothes. And hence David's language, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. But David is musing upon the sacrificial system which is the lamb typified. And then later in history, we come to Isaiah. This is called progressive revelation. In Isaiah, we see the lamb personified. We should have already picked up on that as early as Genesis 3.15. But now it is very evident that this lamb is going to be a man. Isaiah will say in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And get this, verse 7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. This is the, the lamb personified. And so if Abraham had been there, and he wasn't, and Isaiah had asked, where's the lamb? Abraham would have said to him, God will provide himself that lamb, the lamb personified. Then there's 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament. And they would have been asking, where is that lamb? And then in the first century, we see the lamb identified through the ministry of John the Baptist. John 1, 29, he points to his cousin. He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Then in Revelation, the end of the New Testament, we have the Lamb magnified. Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And in the very end of the canon, Revelation 22, we have the Lamb glorified. Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This Lamb, who is the fulfillment of the question Isaac asked his father, has now been enthroned. He is the point of the Bible. It's interesting, it's no wonder that when we read of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 22, Jesus' proper name is not even mentioned. But the lamb is mentioned five times. Five times. In fact, in Revelation, the lamb is mentioned 28 times. Why? John the Revelator recognized he is the point of history. Where is the lamb? God has provided himself the lamb in the Son of God. And that's why this was Abraham's fruitful moment. But for that to happen, something critical has to occur that we read about in verses 20 to 24. We'll close out our time here in this second part of this passage. We've seen Abraham's fruitful moment. And I'm going to surprise you here. I'm going to say here, now we're going to see Isaac's fruitful moment. And it's not going to be what we expect. Look with me in verse 20. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, they had sense of humor, those parents. Kemuel, <laughs> the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Zidlap, and Bethuel. If you don't pronounce these names correct, you're going to miss the whole point of this. <laughs> Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaim, Teash, and Makkah. Now, why is this list of names important? For one, these list of names are going to be seen again in Scripture. We get to see their origin. So, for instance, the land of Aram produced the Aramaeans that we read about in Deuteronomy 26. Both Uz and Buzz appear as Arabian tribes in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 25. This is reminding how historical the Scriptures are. And Chesed is likely the father of the Chaldeans. But that's probably not the most important thing for us. If you look at this passage and you're wondering why we're hearing about the children of Nahor, and what does this have to do with the first 19 verses? It has everything to do with the first 19 verses. 
Remember here, Abraham and Sarah are in their hundreds at this point, and they have a son. And this son has to multiply. That's the promise. That's the promise, okay? And right there in the midst of Abraham's arrival in Beersheba, word is sent to him. And the word goes like this. You know your brother, Naor, back east. He had all of these children. He had all of these children. And the names, of course, um, are largely obscure to us. But there's a couple that stand out. And we're going to read more about them in Genesis 24. Bethuel and his daughter, Rebecca. This, this brief section right here prepares us, right? For Isaac's marriage and his bride, but it also reminds us, and this is true of us as well, God is controlling events that you're not even aware about, aware of right now that has great significance on your life for the college students, for our youth. Right now, if God has called you to be married, he's at work elsewhere preparing for your groom, your, your bride, whatever it might be. He's preparing this person as he is preparing you. And so for Isaac, his most fruitful moment perhaps was the birth of his future bride, Rebecca. And, and it, it just reminds us these are events that Isaac wouldn't even have been aware of at that moment that would have eternal impact on redemptive history. And here's why. Abraham's fruitful moment in Isaac's fruitful moment, if you want to say the birth of his future bride are eternally related. You see, the one in whom the ram points will come from the offspring of Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. The very one who will be the fulfillment of the promise that you see there in verses 17 to 18. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, we see it's going to involve war warfare. He will possess, this offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. Now, the original fulfillment, let me just speak to fulfillment of prophecy. Oftentimes in prophecy, there's an initial fulfillment, and then there's perhaps more fulfillments, but then there's an ultimate fulfillment, okay? And so the seed of Abraham is Isaac. The seed of Abraham is Jacob. The seed of Abraham is Judah. The seed of Abraham is David. The seed of Abraham is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a filling full of the prophecies, all right? 
In this particular case, the origin or the initial fulfillment will be the corporate son, Israel. This is the original audience who will go into a land filled, yes, with milk and honey, but a land filled with wickedness, filled with child sacrifices to appease the gods. And he is promising this offspring of Abraham will possess the gates of their enemies. That's an initial fulfillment. Israel in the land. Fortunately, Israel capitulated to the enemies. They became like them, okay? And so we know that's not the ultimate fulfillment. Here we notice some grammar. Look again in verse 17. He says, and here the offspring switches from plural to singular. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Do you get that? That's singular. And that's the very grammatical detail the Apostle Paul picked up in Galatians 3.16. That very detail. When he writes... Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And how does that benefit us? He goes on in verse 29, and if you are Christ, that is, if you belong to Christ, you've been united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, then you are Abraham's offspring. Makes sense because the offspring is to bless the nations, heirs according to promise. But how can this be as we close? We need to keep in mind, whereas sin is our internal moral problem, forgiveness is an intrinsic moral problem with God in this sense. In order for God to have us as his offspring, as his children, in order for God to forgive us, he cannot deny himself in the process. He cannot deny himself as holy and righteous. He cannot arbitrarily forgive like the president does every Thanksgiving with the turkey. Giving that turkey amnesty every year. That turkey deserves to die. <laughs> he can't arbitrarily forgive without, get this, full satisfaction of his own moral character. And that's why God must provide the lamb, the substitute. And in the same passage in Galatians 3, Paul says he has. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming curse for us. Galatians 3, 13. Divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution. And for believers here tonight, this is intended to nurture your love for him, strengthen your faith in him,
to foster faithfulness in light of what he has done for you. Holiness in light of what he's done for you. Righteousness in light of what he's done for you. And as Adam, as the musicians come forward, for those who've never responded to God's only provision for sin, understand your sin is your greatest moral problem. You will be held accountable for it and it will be an eternal judgment. It will be an eternal reality. But Isaac asked the question that's been answered, where's the lamb? God has provided himself the lamb. And if you will come to the lamb tonight, humble yourself, rid yourself of your pride, of your self-exaltation, acknowledge your sin, and come to him on his terms, he will take away your sins. We're going to have our pastors here at the end of the aisle as we sing. Won't you come and respond to that plea tonight? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.